Download the app. Bet big, win bigger. I've got to tell you, I really like the sound of that. And with WinBet, it's just that easy. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet has what you need to win. So if you're from Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, or right here in Virginia, sign up today to receive a special offer. A risk-free $1,000 sports bet. New users can also take advantage of WinBet's Bet $1, win $100 offer. Simply bet $1 and receive a $100 free bet. Come on, guys and gals. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com. Download the app, bet big, and win bigger. And let's get after it. Terms and conditions apply. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where WinBet is available. Gambling problem? In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. In Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia, call 1-800-GAMBLER. And in Michigan, 1-800-270-7117. Tennessee, y'all too. 1-800-889-9789. This show's all over the place. We've got two guys from the, the good old Grateful Dead cast coming on. Rich and Jesse. We're going to deadhead out here in a little bit. Uh, we're also gonna we're gonna talk about the game two nights ago. Uh, Justin Fields, his night. Tony Carrente, his night. The two stars of the show, basically. Uh, and also, it's Veterans Day coming up, so I want to talk to you about conquering Kelly. It's a uh, it's a program we run at the Chris Long Foundation. Kibo Hut. Kibo Hut. That's in Tanzania. That's um, 15,000 feet up Mount Kilimanjaro. That's where you go the last night before you 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 summit that thing. You sleep for five hours. Uh, it's freezing cold. Well, you don't really sleep. I never sleep up there. It's cold. It's altitude sucks. And uh, you're tired. And then you set off at midnight to, to summit Kilimanjaro, 19,341 feet. I'll tell you why I'm talking about Kilimanjaro in a minute. And uh, to keep it with the theme here. On a mountain going, blowing free. Thinking about the days that used to be. We'll go Del McCory, high on a mountain. Uh, Del McCory is a legendary bluegrass dude. And uh, I love the song, but we're talking about a mountain here. The reason I'm talking about Kilimanjaro is because it is Veterans Day tomorrow. Uh, and we do a climb every year for Waterboys, waterboys.org, called Conquering Killy. And we take veterans, uh, and by we, I'm talking about any athletes that are willing to climb a damn near 20,000 foot mountain in their off season, uh, or if you're retired or that sort of thing, hit me up. Uh, but it's hard. Okay. Jason Kelsey and I got into it one day. Uh, we joke about it now when Kelsey went up with me and Connor Barwin and these guys, we got back down to Kibo hut after that March up to the summit past Stella point up to the summit. <laughs> we got back down there and Jason was like, you motherfucker, you didn't tell me how hard this was. And he was upset with me. 
So if you're listening and you're an athlete or you're somebody who wants to climb Kilimanjaro, read the bold letters. It is not like a hop, skip, and a jump up that mountain. It is a long way. So we take our veterans, we take our athletes, we've had MMA fighters, we've had NFL players, I've had Steven Jackson up there, I've had Justin Wren up there, uh, the big pygmy, the guy who came on my podcast recently, uh, heavyweight, Bellator, the whole nine yards. I've had numerous athletes uh, climb this mountain with me, but my favorite people to climb this mountain with me are the veterans every year. And you know the reason we set out to start Conquering Killy, and you can learn more about it at waterboys.org slash Killy, if you want to donate to support a veteran getting ready for their 2022 climb on this Veterans Day Eve, uh, you can do that. Follow uh, those directions and click. Um, but yeah, the reason we do that is to, to support veterans. Like uh, our, My foundation has always been one that has supported veterans. I think it's important to me. And to support veterans in a, in a, in a way... You know, we say thank you a lot, thanks for your service, that sort of thing. Like, I, I want to put something behind that, you know. Um, and Conquering Killy for us is an opportunity to give veterans and players who are missing that team environment a chance to join a team and meet a goal, like an objective, uh, a mission for the veterans, for us a goal. You know, like there is uh, a world of difference between fighting in a war and, and playing a pro sport in football. I mean, it gets thrown around a lot. You know, um, you guys are warriors or something like that's not true. You know, the guys and girls that we've climbed with Kirstie Ennis, who's the first female above the knee amputee to, to summit Kilimanjaro. She went with us. Um, you know, we've had green berets, Marines, uh, Elliot Ruiz shout out. We had, uh, Ivan summit with us completely blind. Um, led up the mountain by Nick Hardwick and Luis Castillo, two guys from the Chargers, because Fred, Freddie, Green Beret, big, big athletic, tough, ultra marathoner, Green Beret, badass. First time he went up, he was spitting up blood. It was tough. He, he had to turn around. Like, it was, it was rough, dude. Like, summit night can be rough. Freddie had to pass off Ivan to Luis and to, uh, to Nick, and I can, I'll never forget this, when Freddie was like, you got him? Because Freddie was like his guy, right? And the guys were like, I got him. And Freddie's like, no, do you have him? Because when we say I got my, my dude, it's a lot different than when y'all say I got my dude. So like, there, is a, a, there are some similarities between vets and athletes and that we love a team environment. We love an objective, a goal. And for a lot of retired athletes, we're, we're feeling like there's a void just the same way in a very different way as the veterans feel like there's a void. So there's this awesome synergy with these groups that have never met each other, might have nothing in common, but what they do have in common is they love a team environment and they love meeting a goal. And so when we get in these mess tents on the way up the mountain, guys are playing cards, girls are playing cards, people on the climb are playing cards, like hanging out, telling stories, e eating, just bullshitting, just like we're in a locker room or like they're in a tent halfway around the world and all of a sudden we're back doing what we used to do in a way. And so I think for the veterans, like I appreciate their leadership. I appreciate the way that they fundraise for us all year, getting ready for this deal. I want to shout out Carrie Rock here in Charlottesville, who's taking the ball and run with it. Our veterans are the backbone of this operation, Conquering Kelly, and our veterans lead the pro athletes. You know, when we get over there, it's amazing how leadership emerges in a group. 
Like it just, you find out who the leaders are. More often than not, it's going to be somebody who wore a uniform and not the ones with the, the, the shoulder pads. So I really appreciate their leadership. I appreciate, you know, they're getting involved in the fight for clean water. That's what we're raising money for as we climb that, as we climb that mountain every year. It's service. It's, it's a way to get back involved and serve. I mean, who knows how to, to serve a country? Uh, you know, a lot of these places that the men and women that fought for our country have spent time in are extremely impoverished and they know about things like clean water uh, scarcity or contamination or the whole nine yards, whatever way that poverty rears this ugly head, like this is a familiar force um, to the veterans that we bring on these trips. So I appreciate their leadership. I appreciate their getting involved and you can get involved too and help them it's the one thing, like, listen, there's a lot of ways you can probably help veterans. I mean, ask a veteran, like, how can we help? Like, what do you think is needed? But at the Chris Long Foundation, the one way that we, you know, like, kind of stay involved is giving veterans a vehicle for good. And everybody wins because they are our best fundraisers. And they're tremendous friends of the friends of the program in a way. I'd say we got group chats for that for that conquering Killy climb that that pop off all day, every day. Uh, they're still popping off from a few years ago. I had Haloti Nada <laughs> climb that mountain. I mentioned Stephen Jackson. I had you know Haloti retired at the top. There's so many highlights for me on this climb, but there are no highlights like the highlights of seeing a you know a vet feel like they're back in the game helping somebody. And that that there's a there's a real purpose and that we share it together. So I appreciate y'all. I hope you guys will go to waterboys.org slash Killy to donate, to do a little something, pay it forward for people that have, have paid it forward for you in a lot of ways. And I'm um, wishing all the veterans out there a happy Veterans Day. For those of y'all listening who did not serve, ask a veteran how you can help. Just ask. What do you guys need? What do you girls need? What do you, what do y'all need that's not being provided? And so I hope you spend tomorrow thinking about that. So Veterans Day is tomorrow. Uh, y'all watched Monday Night Football a night or two ago. Being a Bears fan has to feel like summoning Kilimanjaro on a weekly basis. I mean, for sure. Not every game is as entertaining as uh, Bears-Steelers last night. We thought we were in for a rock fight. It was a lot of fun. It wasn't fun if you wanted to see a game that wasn't taken over by the officials. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but I had a great time last night took a bunch of edibles and watched Monday Night Football, which is like most Monday nights, only uh, I made a joke on Twitter that went uh, about like this. It said, uh, what happens first, the edible kicks in or the Bears score first? I was on the Bears. I had the Bears in uh, in a teaser, so they were getting 14, and the, the total was 47. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I flirted with uh, teasing the over down. That's what I should have done because uh, I had a feeling that Justin Fields would figure this thing out as the game went on. I set the odds at minus 330 that the uh, the edible would kick in first, and it did. The edible kicked in in the red zone. The Bears kicked the field goal. I had people tweeting at me like, damn, you really are high. I'm like, hey, welcome to my Twitter account. Like literally, if you're reading a tweet, what I'm probably doing is is following along with a game that I have money on on an edible, like any night. So Monday nights, they're gonna be edible, gummy, gummy night football. Call it gummy night football. Every Monday night, come to me, and um, you'll get some good tweets on, on, on Twitter. I'm Joel911. 
Joel91. Is that it, Cowboy Reed? That is the Twitter account you created. I have a hard time plugging the podcast. I have a hard time plugging my social, but check that out. Listen, a couple news items before I break this game down a little bit. Aaron Rodgers is not getting dropped by State Farm. That is a shock, huh? On Sunday on the pod, I was like, dude, my big gripe with Aaron is just that, like, well, besides, we disagree on all the, 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 the other stuff, but I don't want to bore you guys with that. I'd be the 10,000th person who, who pointed out various, like, fact-checking type deals from the McAfee interview. But my big problem is that cancel culture is not really that fucking real, man. It's not that real. You lost a, a healthcare um, partnership. Huge shocker. Like, that's, there's like a bunch of doctors over there. Doctors disagree with you. You know that even. So, um, State Farm, standing by Aaron. Some people said like, um, hey, but he was, the ads were down to 1%. So 1% of State Farm ads, actually 1.5%. Um, even in the South, State Farm had like de-emphasized their Aaron Rodgers coverage this weekend. Can they take the fucking weekend? He's kind of like a trending topic. That doesn't mean they canceled him, dude. They actually came out over the last 48 hours and said, well, we're, not, we're not canceling Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I don't know if Aaron's happy or sad about that because he said he was climbing into his cancel culture coffin uh, and nothing's happened, dude. Like really nothing's happened. He's going to take the field Sunday. He's going to play great. Um, the Packers are as good as any Packers team I've seen since I've retired and started covering this stuff. A couple weeks ago, I said, you know, I finally believe in them. I was like one of the mo- foremost Packers haters when they were 13 and three the last two years, and people were saying, you just hate the Packers, Packers fans. No, you just weren't ready. Your defense has showed up two weeks in a row here in different scenarios. One, where you didn't have your coordinator. Two, uh, where you didn't have your quarterback and you had to beat the Kansas City Chiefs. You didn't do that, but you kept your offense in the game, and they had plenty of chances. I, I, uh, I outlined them on the podcast on Sunday night. The Packers had plenty of chances to win that game, thanks to the defense. So I think that the Packers are ready to make a run. I think that Aaron Rodgers will be back Sunday. I think you'll see a lot of State Farm commercials, uh, and you'll realize that cancellation is most times a fucking, it's a, it's a look over here thing. It's not, it's not real. It's not real. Aaron's fine. He's rich. He's famous. He's good looking. He's going to win Super Bowl MVP, and they're going to run State Farm commercials the whole Sunday. And at the speech, he's going he's gonna to say, Man, we really overcame cancel culture this year. I'm very proud of me and my team. Uh, so Aaron will be back. Let's not panic about Aaron, the football player. Um, but come on, man, cancel culture doesn't apply here. I don't know where it applies when it comes to athletes. If you didn't do anything illegal, you're probably not getting canceled. You're still going to make a fuck ton of money, and you're still going to have a bunch of people to love you. And that's kind of the way it's played out. People will forget about this thing, for better or for worse. That's just the way things are. People are forgiving in this country, even if you lie. Aaron Rodgers, he'll be back Sunday. I'll bet the Packers. They're going to play the Seahawks. I will bet the Packers. Nick Chubb has COVID, so he's going to be out this week. So just when the Browns think they have it together, you know, the, their best player, I mean, like Miles Garrett, probably their best player, their second best player, Miles Garrett and Nick Chubb, damn, they have two like Hall of Fame caliber guys on that football team. I don't know of a back that scares me more than Nick Chubb right now. You could argue that different guys could maybe do more. The guy's averaging like nine yards a carry, dude. He had nine yards a carry the other day. Um, 
eight-man boxes, like 100-plus yards on like eight carries. So there's just nobody like this guy, and when you lose a guy like that, especially a week after you weather that Odell storm, all the injuries, Baker looks good. You know, he doesn't have to do a ton, but what you ask him to do, he, he, he does a great job at it. This is like really sweeping the rug out from under these guys, and they got to play the Patriots of all teams. Uh, and you know Bill, who's as big a, a Jim Brown fan as anybody, uh, Brown's running backs. Uh, I bet he sees a little bit of Jim Brown in Nick Chubb, and I bet that Bill Belichick is pretty relieved that he doesn't have to deal with Nick Chubb on Sunday. It's a pick em right now. I like the Patriots. I don't want to overthink this one. I don't know where the money is. I like the Pats. By the way, I'm going to be doing Thursday night football on Amazon. The line uh, for the Baltimore-Miami game is like nine. Harbaugh, it's the Kiko Alonso revenge game. They're going to kick the shit out of these guys. They're going to kick the shit out of these guys. And I'm out for blood because I had the Texans this week and somehow they didn't cover against the, uh, the, the mighty Dolphins. So this week, uh, Dolphins not covering the spread. Book it. Lamar, the Ravens, they're not that good. Lamar covers up for a lot of their deficiencies. I've said this over and over again. At some point, the, the clock's going to strike midnight on this team. They've won a lot of close ball games, overtime games, 2-1 and one in overtime games. You know, crossbar, beat the Lions. Clock's not going to strike. They're not going to turn into pumpkins against the fucking Dolphins, dude. They're going to they're gonna beat the shit out of the Dolphins. I see this being a little bit more of a vintage uh, Ravens win than the way they've won lately. So take the Ravens on Thursday night, take the Patriots on Sunday. I'll get back to you on the rest of it. I lean Packers. I mean, the Packers are like three-point favorites or three-point dogs. Either way, I don't know how they make that out against the Seahawks. They should be three-point favorites. Four points. Four-point favorites. By the point. You know me. I like buying points. Last night, Steelers, big win for them at home. This thing feels like a little bit wide open. All these teams have yo-yoed. Like for two weeks, Cincinnati was the flavor of the week. For a few weeks before Baltimore got their asses handed to them, finally, um, they were the flavor of the week. You know, the Steelers, everybody's kind of sleeping on them, but they're creeping up because they play good defense, and Najee Harris has been good. They have playmaking wide receivers, and a guy who can still shot put the ball 35 yards. Last night, I mean, he loaded up that RPG, seven-step drop, fucking, I was like, RPG! Thing went like 36 yards. He still can get the ball where it needs to go. And, you know, we think about health. Or we don't think about health with these quarterbacks. You see Matt Ryan in Atlanta kind of slowly getting healthy. Um, well, I don't know that he had something going on, but he looks different this time of year than he did earlier in the year. Maybe there's something with Ben where, you know, as the year goes on, he gets, he gets right. Maybe he had something, you know, nagging in camp. A lot of times... Coming out of camp, and this is for position players, so I can't say this for a quarterback for sure, but you can endure some little things that don't show up on the injury report or maybe do, and then they, and then they disappear, and you're still dealing with them for, for weeks or months. Like I had a torn quad coming out of uh, camp, like not torn like down the middle, but just a little quad tear in my right quad. And so every game, like I had two sacks against the Falcons coming out uh, my last year, 2018 in the opener. But after the game my knee filled up with a bunch of blood that drained out of my quad. Now, that never shows up on the injury report. That took six, seven weeks to go away, you know, and that was a camp injury. I, I heard it against the Browns, I think it was. I aggravated against the Browns in camp. I just say that to say, like, these things don't show up, and maybe they can, they can inhibit quarterbacks from making the throws um, 
it's a very technical position. It's a very, a lot of little muscles working in that position, you know, throwing the football. And at that age, little things can pop up and maybe they go away. I'm not trying to sell you a dream with the Steelers. I did that last year. They were my Super Bowl pick and the bottom fell out from under them. I don't know that any of these teams are elite teams in the NFL. I know Baltimore is going to be a consensus top five team. I'm just telling you, look, like trust your eyes on a lot of these position players in Baltimore. They're not quite the same team that they have been in the past. I don't know that any of these teams with what we've seen from Cincinnati the last two weeks are really primed to make a run right now. A lot can change the rest of the year. I don't know who I trust to win this division, but it's fun. First time since 2008 you've had two divisions this late in the year that have had all winning teams. Thank you for that, Cowboy Reed. So, fun division. Who knows who wins it? I have a feeling it's probably the Ravens because Lamar Jackson is an MVP. He can, he can cover up for so many deficiencies, but the way they live dangerously, I just don't trust them down the stretch. I don't trust Pittsburgh down the stretch, obviously, because of the uh, whole RPG situation. <laughs> um, it's the quarterback thing, man. And, and, and I don't trust, uh, I don't know that Cincinnati's quite ready. I kind of got jumped the gun a couple weeks ago and called them a contending team. Maybe they are. At this point in the season, obviously it doesn't look that way. Two weeks in a row, they've really struggled. And I'm forgetting the Browns, who uh, I just don't trust. I don't trust, it's the least trustworthy best division. I just don't know. But Justin Fields, he, he grew up last night a little bit. And I've liked Justin Fields. You know, I don't watch a lot of Bears games. I mean, I do on like my 14 TV wall. But they haven't exactly played themselves into the big TV arena over here at Greenlight Studios on Sunday. But I've watched him enough to know that I like him. I like his demeanor. I like his style of play. The throws that he makes, the ball's got zip on it. He throws the ball moving on the run pretty well. That's something Matt, Matt Nagy's taking shit for not getting him out on the edge. You know, more QB design run stuff. This guy's huge. His comp for me was like a more athletic Carson Wentz. And, I, and I'm talking about the 2017 Carson Wentz. I'm saying like big, strong guy who can make all the throws uh, and can really hurt you with the football in his hand scrambling. But he's not that guy that you think of that's like scrambling first. He's got the build of a pocket quarterback, but he can really get out and go. He hurt that team with his legs and his arm as the game went on last night. He never really had a chance to get going last night. The field position off the bat was terrible for them. It was great for Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh smacked uh, Chicago in the mouth the first drive defensively. And you're playing catch up in a game on the road that you don't really want to play catch up. This is an in-phase game for you if you're, if you're the Bears. You want to keep this thing in phase, but they're down 14 nothing. So in, uh, not an ideal situation for Justin Fields. He really grew as the game went on. Uh, he made really big throws in like a 10-minute span. I'll really remember these throws. They're backed up on that long drive. They got the field goal that they suffered a bunch of uh, you know, really inexcusable penalties on the part of the refs and Carrenti, uh and that crew. You had the phantom low block. You had a missed roughing the passer. But early in that drive, they're backed up on like the seven-yard line. They're back there because <laughs> the Bears' defense started the game with a penalty. The ball was, I think it was an incompletion, uh, and they endure a penalty. And then the Steelers are damn near at midfield in like two, three plays they go on to score. The Steelers get the ball out of the half. The Bears knock them down for like a two-yard loss or something on a quick game thing. Flag in the air, roughing the passer, I believe it was, a 15-yarder. So effectively, that bad field position trend continues, and what happens is 
you think, oh, no big deal. They get off the field with that penalty. Yeah, but the field flips. And so Justin Fields is on like the seven-yard line to start a drive, and he's got to go 93 yards down 14-3 or whatever it was at this point. That's fucked. And, you know, the Bears continued that first play of the fourth quarter. They endured a penalty on defense, like 14-15 to go. Trot out there, penalty. So penalties was the, th- the theme of the night. Justin Fields overcame a lot of those. He overcame, took, took a lot of free shots, but backed up. He was rolling left, I think, on third down. Beautiful throw. Keep that drive alive. Then he hit Goodwin. Beautiful throw again. Different kinds of throws. One on the run. Uh, one with touch and distance. And then a possession later, a ball down the seam to Komet, which the window was fucking windows like this big. Fit it right in there. Komet got lit up. But great throw. I mean, he grew up in a tough environment to play, a loud place, one of the best spectacles in pro football. And I think he soaked it up and, and, and got better last night. And really, you could make an argument that the Bears should, should have won this game. I mean, he's got to see things like the, the free rusher on the boot. But I like the kid. You remember he got lit up in preseason. He wasn't seeing protections well. This will come. The kid is going to be just fine with the next group, if you know what I mean. He's going to be fine with the next group. The next group. The next coaching staff. He's going to be fine. Steelers defense, fun watching him and Minka kind of like Minka keep an eye on Justin. He came down early in the game and tattooed Justin Fields, and that's a big guy he tattooed. And they were on the sideline, and some people wanted a flag on the Bears' sideline. Grow the fu- Like, it's fucking pro football, man. Like, we can't, we, we can't be looking for roughing flags when your six-foot-three quarterback turns into a runner on the sideline. Like, let's know the rules, and let's realize that he's bigger than most guys in the back seven. So don't feel sorry for him when he gets lit up by Minka Fitzpatrick, who's a great player. And the second time they met on the sideline late in the game, Minka, he's so good, he had Justin draped around Justin's shoulder pads and stayed off him. Was able to, you know, that, that's a tremendous athletic play. To everything you're doing, you're running full speed to get Justin Fields down on the sideline. You're using the sideline, but you want to get a shot in on him, but you lay off, and as you're laying off, you run onto the tarp. So when you run onto a sideline, you're running off the field, and your cleats are not going to dig in the same way and put the brakes on the same way on that tarp. So a lot of times what happens is guys like feel awkward and then everybody falls. Minka Fitzpatrick, great player, great athletic play there to lay off Justin Fields, but lit him up on the sidelines early. Steelers defense, always fun. T.J. Watt, three sacks. Uh, gets him in a lot of different ways. Get him on a boot, gets him on a, an effort sack. He's so skilled. I mean, it's so automatic that he's going to be around the ball. What, what makes us know T.J. Watt well, why he's a household name, is because he's a sack artist. But the reason he's a really great player, a Hall of Fame guy, is because he makes all the plays. He makes them all. And I know that I've bitched about PBUs and people celebrating about PBUs. Like J.J., every time he gets a PBU, he wags his finger, and I'm like, that's PBU. T.J., last night, had the biggest play of the game, quite possibly, on that PBU with five seconds to go. Now, the Bears are down three, I think it was. They lost 29-26, right? So they're down three. Uh, they're driving. They're at midfield. They get a play that gets them to, to damn near mid- midfield, and they have a 66-yard field goal at this point. They can kick. They've got four seconds to go. The refs put a second back on the clock, and it's at this point I say, especially with the Steelers playing off, that the Bears should take an out. They really should. They, I hate Hail Marys. I love watching them, but if I need my team to win – I don't like watching them, and I was betting the Bears. At this point, I had lost the bet, so I didn't give a fuck anymore. But 
take the out, see, take a shot at a 58-yarder. Um, they couldn't get the out because T.J. Watt batted the ball down. Smart play, uh, and there was plenty of cushion to execute a three, four-second out with one second to go, kick a 56-yarder, kick a 58-yarder. I don't know if my math's right, but I like the math there, but in 66 or whatever it is. So not just the three sacks, also a big play down the stretch that you didn't make such a big deal about. And by the way, that kick did not hit the crossbar. I mean, Steve Levy, and that's a tough deal, looking at a kick and trying to gauge where it, where it ends up. But you really have to be careful with Bears fans when you talk about like a football hitting a crossbar. Maybe it makes a thud. Maybe it makes a like a, a dong. Maybe it makes a doink. You you really have not. I do not appreciate Steve trying to trigger Bears fans. I don't appreciate it at all. It's not funny. It's not funny that y'all thought the ball hit the crossbar for six seconds last night. At this point, my teaser's dead. Sorry, I can laugh. Najee Harris. Najee Harris played great. Great usage for him. I, I thought when they drafted him, the narrative was they don't have an O-line. They couldn't protect last year. You know, teams are going to load the box. Why? Well, he's been most of their offense all year long, and he was great. He was patient last night. He did not sleep on the floor in college. That was one that you got to double-check that if you're in that, in that booth because they told a story about him. He was homeless for a while. This is a real thing. But they said when he got to Alabama, he slept on the floor for like months because that was more like, I don't know where these stories come from. I don't know who makes that story up and how it makes it onto the production sheet at Monday Night Football. You might want to check that one before you're like, yeah, the fucking guy slept on the floor because Najee Harris came right out of the game, checked his phone in his locker and got a bunch of texts from people like, you slept on the floor? Like his roommate's like, what the fuck did you sleep on the floor? What are you telling these guys? Obviously, Najee didn't tell them that. They heard it. They read about it somewhere. Like me sometimes on a podcast where I read something and it's not true. Uh, but that's an interesting uh, text message to get back to to your locker and check. Um, Big Ben did enough. Fryermuth is a good player. Like he's a good player. I've been, I held his name against him. A guy like that has to fight through having a name like Fryermuth for a long time. And everybody's like, hey, he's unathletic. He's a blocking tight end. But really, he's got ball skills. Like a guy like Fryermuth is supposed to be a blocking tight end. That's it. He's supposed to be like Spath, the guy that was in Pittsburgh, who, by the way, had the biggest vice grips of all time. Like he held the fuck out of you every play and got away with it. I thought he was going to be more like, like with a name like Fryermuth, you think he'd be more like Spath than Heath Miller, who, by the way, could block too and drew comparisons last night. That's a huge compliment. The ball skills on this kid, I mean, in the red zone for them, it's big. It is big. Kicking game was great. Boswell was great. A week after that hellacious concussion where he got glitched out of the fucking screen, he looked like all all y'all if you guys got zapped into a pro football uniform and they were like, hey, take a snap. That's what y'all would look like. That's how Bosworth looked when he rolled right and ran out of places to throw the ball. It's like I could hear the clock. He got drilled. He got roughed. But we're not looking out for kickers in the passing game. Today, last night, um, he drilled multiple field goals, in, including the the go-ahead field goal that won the game uh, with some distance. He also, the most impressive thing to me that would tell me that Boswell is a fucking football player, he's officially a football player, is he fielded a ground ball with a whole... <laughs> 
a whole herd of bears coming at him. Uh, one of his dudes fumbled, and the ball popped. No, it was one of the bears fumbled, or bears fumbled. Yeah, bears fumbled. Bears fumbled. And Bosworth, he's got this Sunday hop coming right at him. That's the good news. But the bad news is, I think as the ball is coming to him, he realizes that a week ago I was tasting spinal fluid on the sideline. Like maybe, maybe I just get out of the way. He is officially a football player. He caught the ground ball. He took the hit. He was like on his knees. I thought he was going to get folded back like a like a cheap lawn chair that got run over by a by a tractor or something like. He was just in the, the most inopportune position, but he found a way to stand in there, take the hit. He also drilled some field goals. He's a fucking football player, this guy Boswell. Shout out to him. But the refereeing took over this football game, right? That that was, unfortunately for the NFL, the um, that was the news this morning. And you don't need that. Like, the news you've had the last week is, like, star quarterback lies about vaccine <laughs> and then goes on Pat McAfee's show. And makes more news. Uh, Odell and Baker don't get along. You know, you had obviously terrible things coming out of Vegas. You had the drunk driving uh, accident, that tragedy that Henry Ruggs caused. And then Damon Arnett has like, he has like Taliban guns in his house, dude. I'm just going to be real. Like when you have the AK with the brown handle with like the wood stock, like where did you get that, dude? <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe a lot of people have that stuff, but he had a lot of fucking guns, man. They said he crashed four, four rental cars. I don't know how you do that. When you go back to, do you hit the different desk every time? Like the first time you go to dollar and you get a, a, like a Chrysler 300C, then you total that motherfucker. And then you go to budget, you get a minivan and you crash that. Like eventually you're going to get like the, you come back to the airport and they're like, not again, dude. The Vegas thing is, it's, it's, it's been a tough couple weeks. And by the way, the Giants game, I, I tweeted this yesterday. I'm not willing to, I might bet the Raiders this weekend. I'm not willing to, to bury the Raiders yet because they've been through so much and they found a way to string together a couple good wins. Uh, I had Keyshawn on the show. He talked about the Italian stallion, as he called him. Bisaccia, the head coach now for the interim head coach for the Raiders, and how much gravitas this guy has and some of the other great coaches that they have on their staff and that team is tough they've been through a lot they'll be fine that was the Raiders traveling east is a bad proposition if you're going to bet the Raiders don't bet them traveling east and definitely don't bet them on the tail end of a run like that where they shouldn't have been winning so I say that to say there's been a lot of bad news in the NFL it was a really fun football game last night we're not talking about Justin Fields we're not talking about TJ Watt we're talking about Tony Carrenti I mean, he's the, he, he made himself the star of the show. You already missed a call on the low block, right? They showed that with the tackle box. That so was bogus. You missed a Justin Fields roughing, um, which five plays ago on the last possession, the very reason that you had bad field position was because you just overcame bad field position because the Steelers got roughed. And it was nothing compared to the three-step unloading that somebody did to Justin Fields. Justin Fields was just laying there. like he, There was a shot of Justin Fields just laying there. And it, it was just evident that this kid was getting the raw, the raw end of the deal. But D linemen were getting the raw end of the deal, which is normal. We're used to that. There's a fucking national tight ends day. You guys, it's the easiest position in the world to 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 become a tight end. People like people. Tim Tebow became a tight end, dude. That's what Tim Tebow did. Tim Tebow was like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Like, how do I, 
sell tickets in this motherfucker for Jacksonville. Urban Meyer's like, how do I get my neighbor on the team? Let's hide him at tight end. There's a national tight ends day. We get our ankle twisted like Brian Burns. We get fined for, for shitty calls all the time. Nobody knows who we are. Like Shaq Barrett, if he walked around a mall in New York City, nobody would recognize him. Okay? Guy practically won the Super Bowl, him and JPP, for the Bucks. And then we get hip-checked by, uh, by officials. Like, what's next? What's next? We get no respect. At least they pay us. You get paid, you rush the pastor, because you got to deal with all this bullshit. By the way, the Brian Burns thing, that was dirty. I saw it the last... Like, you can call it what you want to saw- call it. I saw the video. I saw the new angle. And my man twists his ankle. He twists his ankle. It's Call it what it is. Pats fans, of course, they've never done anything wrong. And I'm on your side on Deflategate. I don't know about Spygate. Deflategate, I'm on your side. Anklegate, not on your side. Um, Corrente bumped into uh, to Cassius Marsh like he was fucking uh, Jokic. I mean, <laughs> Cassius Marsh is like, what just happened? Cassius Marsh is on his eighth team. My man got to Chicago after being on the Steelers practice squad. Just got caught up because a bunch of people are hurt. And Cassius Marsh finds himself getting a sack. By the way, shout out to 97 on the assist there. He's on the ground. He's off the ground. Takes Cassius Marsh or gives Cassius Marsh a little bit more time to rush. Comes up with the sack. Does a sick karate kick. Cassius Marsh, awesome dude. Into magic cards and shit. Also, evidently, Kung Fu. Just takes a look at his old teammates which anybody could do that. Like, I've made plenty of plays and just looked at the other sideline. Looked way worse than that at the other sideline. And there's like a four-second delay before the guy throws the flag. And this is where people are confused. I will give Tony Carinti this. He's got his hand on his flag because, you know, the Bears did something good. Before he bumps into Cassius Marsh, before he does like the fucking salsa into Cassius Marsh. Um, And as soon as Cassius Marsh kind of passed him. He's like, what the fuck, dude? You're like the guy at the bathroom, like in front of the bathroom at the bar. Tony Carrente was the guy who, when you're trying to get to the bathroom at the bar, dudes like, dudes just kind of like lean into you like, like it's their hallway. That was what Tony was like. Cassius was confused and he gets to the sideline and then he's getting his ass ripped by coaches. He's like, dude, I didn't do anything. I didn't bump into the official. He bumped into me. I looked at the sideline like whatever. I didn't say a thing. Taunting shit's gotten out of control. 40-something flags this year so far on taunting. I think 47, Taylor said. 31 total taunting flags. Uh, oh, that was my year. guess, was 47. Yeah. So there's misinformation there, guys. But, uh, 31 taunting flags, but in 2020 and 2019 combined? Only 20. Only 20. Total. In 19 and 20, 20 taunting penalties. There have been in the 30s this year. The race to 50 taunting penalties. At some point, we're going to get tired of this shit. It was like a couple years ago with uh, PI. Maybe it was. People, after a few months, were like, guys, we can't live like this anymore. And the NFL stopped emphasizing that call. It's about time the NFL stops emphasizing taunting. They can make it go away. They've done it before with other calls. Make it fucking go away. Because nobody likes it. Unless you're doing the thing, and I've posited this before, like bad officiating is good money for the NFL. We haven't turned it off. We got through the replacement refs. We've gotten through a bunch of, but we got through LA, New Orleans. We got through a bunch of taunting penalties, DPIs, the whole nine yards. We're going to watch football. When are people on Twitter talking about the game the most? When there's a bad call. 
That's the time when everybody gathers. That's I made this argument with replay before. We got to have replay because if you have replay, you have conversation. That's when the game stops and everybody talks. And so like I'm I'm really anti-taunting, but maybe the NFL is looking at it like, hey, they're talking about us. All pub is good pub for the NFL because they're not going to turn it off. I mean, Bears' defensive penalties were terrible. I talked about them self-imposed. Um, but when you rough Ben and then Justin gets drilled, you don't say anything. The low block penalty, the taunting, just a bad night for the refs. And, 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 and a tough night for me. I lost a bet, but also Cassius Marsh, who Mina Kimes said looks like me she said me and cole beasley <laughs> made cassius marsh <laughs> i oh uh, he kind of does look like me he's got tattoos he wore 91 in seattle when when i was in st louis and by the way i love i love this kid he's a great kid people were like oh he's a little c long he weighs a lot less than me he's but yeah i mean he's got tattoos he's, he, he he wore 91 he's a passer he's a white pass rusher got it guys you guys think he's a white pass rusher you think he's a white pass rusher just by the way you think he's a white pass rusher jokes on you batman but cassius and robert quinn my old rush mate <laughs> the guy that was my bookend in st louis and we we did numbers together for years and that's my bro like talked to him the other day now Cassius Marsh is trying to take my spot. And I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Tattooed white guy ro- rushing opposite uh, Robert Quinn. And Robert Quinn bailed him out the next play just like he used to bail me out after that penalty. Robert Quinn, you know, uh, gets Ben's ankle. Robert Quinn still got it, by the way. Basically two sacks to his name last night. couple offsides. Got to realize Robert Quinn has a huge head. Robert Quinn's head is like a size nine head. The helmet is the size of like a microwave. So he doesn't know that he's off sides. Okay, so people are like, I just don't understand. Lewis Ritter's like, I don't get what he doesn't get. He's in his 11th year. His head's not getting any smaller. And these fucking O-linemen back up further and further off the ball. It's disorienting when you look across. Like, where's the line of scrimmage? The tackle's six yards back. And by the way, TJ Watt complained about uh, JP leaving early. And the tackles for the Bears leaving early. Like, how TJ Watt complains after a game like that where it was gift wrap for you. Come on, TJ. You're a great player. Awesome game. <laughs> Just maybe leave, leave it. They leave. The tackles leave early all the time. But Cassius Marsh, this whole time, Chris Long looking ass, Robert Quinn hanging out with ass, walks over to the sideline. And this is the part that tripped me out the most. And I'm on a gummy here. He starts talking to Alec Ogletree. He's talking to all my old friends. He's rushing with my old bookend. He's hanging out with my old friends. He's tattoos. Everybody thinks he's a white pass rusher. Intellectual property. IP. IP, Cassius. But yeah, Bears defense gave their best. Um, I want to I give a shout out to the interior of that line. They played great, especially in short yardage. They pummeled Pittsburgh's interior. Like you get into fourth and one. Pittsburgh kept going for it. Their numbers are bad on fourth down, and that was a bad matchup. Like, they were crushing those dudes up front. So, you know, if you're a Bears fan, my takeaway is you deserve, like, a medal. Because, like I said, they're usually on the small TV. Last night, they were on the big TV. There's only one big one TV on Monday night, and I had a rooting interest in y'all. Uh, and you would have delivered had I just bet the Bears, but I teased them. Uh, I might stop teasing for the rest of the year. Just go with my gut. Um, so Bears fans, 
tip of the cap to you for enduring that shit every week. I mean, I, I was tweeting at y'all, is it like this every week? And for the Steelers, they're back in that, you know, kind of mosh pit that is the AFC North. I mean, Steelers in the playoffs? I don't know. Feels normal. Feels like NFL playoff football. We'll see. All right. Today, I have two dudes who know the Grateful Dead very well. Rich Mahan and Jesse Jarno. They started uh, the good old Grateful Dead cast. This thing is really informative now. If you're like me and you're very self-aware and you realize you're not a dead, like there's always going to be a bigger deadhead. Like if I ever become a deadhead, I think I need to put in like a decade as a Grateful Dead fan. I might call myself a deadhead, but I still never saw him, you know, play. I never, I don't know all the live shows. I can get in these conversations that I'm in over my head. But if you listen to Grateful Dead cast, you can almost pretend to be a deadhead, which is a really tough thing to do. If you're ever going to be like an undercover police officer, you're going to be like, you're going to be like a, a, a spy trying to blend in. I feel like a room full of deadheads and a conversation starts is really hard to, to keep up. It's really hard to pretend like you know something when you don't know something. So if you're ever looking to fudge it, or if you just want to learn about the dead, check out this podcast. And these guys were really gracious with their time. Talked to them a couple weeks ago. But it's one that uh, I really enjoyed and uh, one that was informative for me. So check out their podcast. If you like the dead, keep listening. If you don't like the dead, if you were like me for most of my pro career, like I said, this, I, li- I lived a very conflict-oriented life. Like everything was like competition, being pressed, being pushed, like pressure, all this stuff. Like I didn't feel like the Grateful Dead on its surface was welcoming to a guy like me day in and day out. Now, I like some of their music but I never really dove in. In fact, I, I plain didn't get it until I was about 32. So it's been a fun four or five years learning the dead and uh, hope to learn more about the dead and listen to a lot more of the dead because different songs pop up every month that I didn't get before and I totally get now. It took me years to love Direwolf. I probably listened to Direwolf more than any song I listened to this month. It just clicked for me. So... Every month there'll be a new thing, and I, I'm excited to be on that journey. I hope y'all enjoy hearing from Jesse and Rich as much as I enjoy talking to them. So if there's any deadheads out there, hopefully I don't, I don't fuck this thing up too bad. I don't sound like a cop, a narc, total poser. So hit me up, let me know what you thought. Y'all enjoy. We'll be back Friday, your Friday, with Stanford Steve, James Coe, the whole, the whole gang. So, uh, and obviously Macon. Macon took the day off today. There's too many drugs involved in the Grateful Dead podcast. So he was like, I don't want to be anywhere near the studios. Too many drugs. If you're in Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, Tennessee, or Virginia, and you haven't yet tried the WinBet app, I've got great news for you. WinBet is now offering a 200% wager match for new users up to $1,500. That's just an incredible offer. WinBet is basically giving you double your first wager in free bets. Don't pass it up. Download the WinBet app today. Terms and conditions apply. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where WinBet is available. Gambling problem? In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. In Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia, call 1-800-GAMBLER. And in Michigan, 1-800-270-7117. Tennessee, y'all too. 1-800-889-9789. All right, guys, as I talked about, I'm not really a big podcast guy other than that I do this shit for a living, but I have really been into the good old Grateful Dead cast. Uh, I am learning about a band that has come on strong for me late in life. I'm getting smarter in my old age. Uh, I've got 
Jesse Jarnow and Rich Mahan. Uh, how y'all doing? Doing great. How are you? Oh man, I'm great. I'm I'm excited. I was just joking offline that uh, I'm in the deep end with you too when it comes to Grateful Dead. I, so don't drown me or <laughs> don't make me sound dumber than I am. You, the first question I probably ask you guys before you guys Safe. tell me about your background and um, and kind of your podcast for people that are listening. What constitutes being a deadhead? Because I am not a deadhead, I'm a dead fan. I get a lot of people because I wear a t-shirt or they talk about the dead on the pod, they're like, I didn't know he was a deadhead. And then I end up in conversations that I can't hold my water in. So what constitutes being a deadhead, first off? Mm. That's a good one. I think where, if you- Yeah, if where you, do you cross that line? Yeah, no, if you think you're a deadhead, you, you, you're a deadhead. Okay. You might be a deadhead. <laughs> that's, that's one thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. Um, it's really all about self-identity, I think, at a certain point, and being willing to call yourself that if you want to. But you know, people people might identify you that as that if you if you wear a shirt or you know can if you can talk about a live show, maybe that maybe that's the qualifying line. Yeah, that, you know, like you if, if you yeah, if you, there's a specific live show. It doesn't even have to be a favorite one. Just you have to just know about one. Then you're a deadhead. Like oh yeah, they did this thing in '77. Bam, you're in. So now, <laughs> it's a low bar. I, mean, exactly. we, I was gonna say it's a we, pretty low bar. We, we, I mean, we want everybody. It's not like it's not like we're trying to disqualify people here. Yeah, it's a big bus. It's yeah. an intimidating bus, though, for a dude like I don't know if <laughs> sure. it was football was obscuring my vision as it did with a lot of things, but you know, like I was living a conflict-oriented life, and on the surface, the Grateful Dead sounds like to somebody from the outside looking in that it's this rosy, happy thing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. There's a duality there, but like, I, I just didn't get it for a long time. And at about 31, 32, with the help of a buddy, Tom Paquette, shout out, uh, I just started diving in. So now I'm confident enough to have you two on the podcast. So I think I thank you for being here. Tell me about your backgrounds, uh, respectively, and, and how you came upon doing this pod. Yeah, I mean, we've both been dead fans for many, many years. I mean, Rich saw I, I saw them twice with with Garcia in the in ninety four. Rich saw many, many more actual dead shows than I did, which which I'm sure he'd be happy to talk about. But you know, yeah, I saw I saw a couple of very you know late Grateful Dead shows, and like everybody you know, including you, including people we've talked to who saw the dead in 1972, I felt like I got to the band really late. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, and that's a, that's, that's an amazing universal thing that we're finding out. Everybody thinks that no matter when you yeah. discover them, it's like, I wish I found them, you know, 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just fell way into the culture, like in a, which, which was such a huge thing where I grew up on Long Island. It was in New York. It was, just deadheads were everywhere and you know and i find out more and more about that as i get older and i i just stayed really into it and, and became a music journalist and started writing a lot about the dead and, and then eventually got to write grateful dead liner notes um which was an incredibly huge honor wow. um and that was sort of what fed into getting to do this podcast with rich rich how about you buddy Man, I don't know. I, I grew up in a spot too, also, but on the West Coast, opposite coast, uh, called Palos Verdes. And for some reason, me too. You grew up in PV, dude? Yeah, well, until I, I was eight, I went to Rolling Hills. Get uh, out of here. Day. I went to PV High. Oh, look at us. We're like rivals, man. <laughs> oh, like, he, as much as Palos Verdes kids are like <laughs> meeting up in the alley. <laughs> yeah, we had it tough. <laughs> to settle a score, man. <laughs> We're only meeting up in the alley to smoke a joint, really. I mean, come on. But. 
but yeah, but it was like, there were two main bands, man. It was the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead. And it was, uh, it was one of those things that it was just always around. And my mom and dad played the Grateful Dead. And um, it was funny. They went to one of these shows that's on this new St. Louis box set. Cause we spent a little time in St. Louis when I was growing up too. But um, yeah, I caught my first show in 85 at the Long Beach arena. Wow. I man, lived in St. Was... Louis too, Rich. We've got a lot in common, man. Oh, wow. Eight, this is really, what years. a trip. Eight yeah. years. Yeah, Clayton. What a trip. Yeah. Oh, okay. I lived out in um, town and country right by Queenie Park. There we go, man. Yeah. This yeah. is awesome. Nuts. Yeah. I know. So, um, yeah. And I went to one show and was just like, man, there's something different going on with this. I'd been to a few shows by that, but I was only, what, 15 or 16 years old when right. I went to my first show. And I was like, there's something different here this feels different it's you know i could tell it was a whole different world that i would just kind of pop the top on and then by 87 i was going to every show that i could get enough money to get out of town and go to you know and it's funny you talk about when do you think you're a deadhead what constitutes a deadhead i never considered myself a deadhead i was just a fan and then all of a sudden they came up in conversation and i hear my sister say oh yeah mitch is totally a deadhead but I turned and I went, maybe I am. <laughs> and that was a sort of a proud moment, a big realization. Yeah, a little bit. I just kind of realized it's like, yeah, I guess I am pretty into it. I look at, you know, I looked in my truck and there were two rows of live cassette tapes. Like, oh, yeah, I may be a deadhead, you know. That's incredible, man. Um, yeah, it's like, maybe it's the first time someone accuses you of being a deadhead. So congratulations, you're a deadhead. That very well could be. Uh, I, I actually ended up in one of those situ situations the other night a guy told me he was a big deadhead i said i'm not a deadhead and we proceeded to talk for 30 minutes about the dead so you might not be a deadhead but i think you might be in denial <laughs> deadhead denial it's real um all right well the, your your pod is really cool because it's not just conversational it's kind of like an investigative journalism pod that that's also conversational, which is really rare for me. So it's like nice, it's highly produced, but it's also low key and chill. And I think you guys pull a really cool thing off. Some of these stories I'm blown away by, like the CSI Grateful Dead type of projects you guys do, like the bar mitzvah in St. Louis. Yeah. Bar mitzvah, yeah. Bar mitzvah, Can yeah. you tell yeah. my listeners that story in some sort of... Yeah, uh -huh. sure. Wow. So I'll start by saying, so the dead put out this, this amazing new box set uh, yes. of shows from St. Louis from 1971 to 1973. So a lot of what we do is, is guided by the newest Grateful Dead release. So I, you know, I know a couple people from, from St. Louis who are like serious music fans, like, and one of them is um, Joe Schwab, who owns an amazing record store in St. Louis called Euclid Records. And he's not a Euclid, deadhead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, not Euclid's a dead. Fantastic. Yeah, not not a deadhead particularly, but I know him from like record collecting world, which is another part of my dork dorkdom. Um, and I just asked him if he knew any rumors about, you know, what he knew about the dead in St. Louis. And he's like, oh, yeah, I saw them in 71. Don't remember much about it. And, you know, and he told me a couple other things that I'd sort of knew about. He There's like a, an old rumor that the dead were going to buy the Fox Theater. Ooh. And lots of people told us that. And that's another story that we investigate a bit. And that's then that's one that it's a, you know, deadheads love folklore and there's lots of it, you know, all these like, uh, you know, oh, I heard this or, you know, oh, this is Owsley acid or just all these like little bits of things that maybe they're true. Um, and so the, there's lots of that floating around and the Fox Theater one was one I had heard. And then he said, when I was in high school, there was this story about that the dead played a bar mitzvah. Have you ever heard anything about that? It's like, nope, <laughs> news to me, man. And I got to say, I doubted him because it was 
I, at this point, I feel like I've heard a lot of that stuff. And <laughs> yeah, it was like the hit rate on these being true. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like, okay, right. sure, buddy. Um, and, a, 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 you know, a few days later, a week later or whatever, he emailed back. He's like, no, no, it, here, I emailed my friend and his older brother was the drummer in the band. <laughs> it was like, right. what? Excuse me? <laughs> and for men, it just sort of like opened up and we, uh, oh, well, then, you know, but part of it is like that CSI thing. He's like, okay, we got a name. It's Richie Gerber. And, you know, so I like plug that there, you know, these databases you can look in to see like, you know, names and where people were born. It's like, oh yeah, there was a Rich Richard Gerber born in, you know, wherever in St. Louis, you know, in 1958. It's like, and December 1958, which means he turns 13 the first week of December 1971 when the dead are in town. So it's like, okay, this is, this is true. You know, and then found Richie, you know, he's a, an attorney in St. Louis that, you know, that took a, a couple rounds of, that was sort of like cross-referencing, like, you know, Anyway, um, but <laughs> it's where it, it got CSI. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's sort of so the story is that this guy, this kid, Richie Gerber, this kid, by the end of the day, a man uh, had a bar mitzvah in St. Louis in 1971. And they had the party at the airport Hilton. This was like the day after two days after. So I guess he was no longer a boy. He was a man by this point. And during <laughs> the party, uh, his older sister's like out hanging out in the lobby and starts talking to these, you know, these guys who are, you know, kind of flirting, kind of hitting on her and turn. And she knows it's, she knows who they are. They're the members of the Grateful Dead who had just played in St. Louis. And she I love this part is that she kind of turns it around on them like they're like, you know, you know, they're clearly hitting on her. And she's like, oh, but my little brother's having a bar mitzvah. Why don't you come say hello and, you know, maybe play a few songs, you know, like the story could have ended so badly. Yes. <laughs> and it doesn't. It ends with a happy Wholesome. ending. Yeah. <laughs> relatively speaking. Um, and they and they come and they crash and it's they do. They they, they there's a, a high school band playing uh, the spring rain local yeah. bar mitzvah band playing, you know, James Taylor and Crosby, Stills and Nash and like Elvis tunes, like, you know, whatever you played a bar mitzvah in 1971 dead get up and it's not everybody uh there's no jerry garcia and no pig pen but it's bob weir and phil lesh and keith godshow <laughs> and uh marmaduke from the new riders of the purple sage and they get up and they play you know the set and then they jam with with the kids and go off on their merry way um and it's amazing it's like a you know can you imagine <laughs> in the social media age the Grateful Dead oh, just no. rolling up. To, that's what makes the, the whole phenomenon yeah. really special to me, too, which is a sidebar we'll get into, is the, the fact that uh, everybody was so, like, you were famous, but you couldn't get online and see what that person looked like. You, you know, you couldn't, you didn't know much about their life. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, that was a real cool thing about music back in that day. So to meet somebody like that by happenstance is probably like meeting a, a, a god among men. Right. And that's where all this stuff, this folklore stuff yeah. comes from, because the dead were like big in the 70s and the 80s when you like you said, you couldn't just go online and like look it all up. Um, so these stories kind of like accrue around them, you know, because it's just it's like an oral tradition. All these people are following the dead around and they're, you know, killing time and, you know, telling stories in parking lots and on long road trips and things. And it's, you know, legends and myths. And if you were a, a video crew, maybe following the dead, you might be on acid by accident. <laughs> yeah. So. Or, inten or intentionally. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, well, by <laughs> accidentally on your end. <laughs> this is the interesting part to me. And I know Jesse, you, you wrote a book on psychedelics. I did. I did. It's called heads, a biography of psychedelic America. 
So you wrote a book uh, on acid. You were on acid writing a book, or is it a book on acid? <laughs> there were, I uh, had, had did have to stop to think about it. No, there was no writing done on wow on acid. But yeah, okay. it's a book about about psychedelics and their impact on on American culture, global culture as well. But um, but really American culture, and kind of only up through the point that I was writing. The last five or six years have been. That's kind of like a whole other book. Right. And the origin story seemed to intertwine pretty naturally with acid. So for people at home that don't know how the Grateful Dead started, talk about the acid tests and kind of those shows that they were headlining or how would you put that? Participating in. They were the the house band. Yeah. 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 They yeah. were. Um... But they said a lot of times it wasn't that they were the focus. They were just part of it. Yeah. Most of the time, actually. And it started before that. Actually, you know, it's like you can spin this theory. Here's like, we'll, we'll, we'll back into this one. But the Grateful Dead would not exist without the U.S. government's help. Oh, and yeah, you can back into that because yeah. of the, the Grateful you know, came out of these government experiments where they yeah. were testing LSD on people to see how they could use it one way or another. And some of the early people that were at these tests were Ken Kesey and Robert Hunter. And then you had Ken Kesey goes, do they know what they're giving us? Incredible. And so they start the Merry Pranksters. And then he wrote, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and got all this money and was able to fund all of this amazingly creative, just what it was shenanigans. They're the Merry Pranksters. And so that turned into the acid tests and the Grateful Dead were there at that same time. And they all just kind of blended together and showed up and hung out and gave birth to this amazingly creative period. Yeah. You know, the acid tests kind of grew out of like, you know, a decade and change of sort of what were called like happenings, these sort of multimedia things that, that sort of grew out of the, you know, art scenes where all these different people working in different medias, mediums kind of collided um, and collaborated in, in real time, just sort of like getting together in a room and acid kind of just blew that up to the next level. Um, and psychedelics are you know a really powerful thing for an individual to take you know and they're amplified in a lot of way when you do them in group settings you know a lot of people a lot of people doing them together a lot of you know crazy shit happens and, that, and that's really what the acid tests are is is this incredible burst of creativity when all these people kind of do this and it's chaos it's fucking yeah. chaos you know yeah. if you've ever taken acid with a group of people but it's it's really it's fun i mean i was not at the acid test and i can only based on my own experiences imagine um but it comes through in the tapes of, of what there is you know in the film and the just these little scraps of of evidence that are kind of left over that it's just this massively creative fun thing that's happening and the yeah like rich said the music was sort of incidental to it but not unimportant you know it was it was yes. um you know they played well, uh, they were playing like clubs elsewhere and you know they took that stuff really seriously. Like they 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 actually said you know they they wouldn't even like really jam at the right. at like the club shows. They were and the, the assets were there. That was how they learned to get loose. That was sort of their that that part of their origin story. Um, and actually, the specifics of their origin story is the the topic of well, what will hopefully be out by the time people are hearing this. Um, uh, an episode about their relationship with Owsley Stanley uh, Bear, who was the, the 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 chief underground LSD chemist in the United States um, for then, you know, making you know really the first making high quality LSD, 
and they when it met was him. still legal, we should add. Yes, when it was still mm. when it was still legal, um, and they met him at one of the acid tests, and he became their their benefactor and their sound engineer, and they all bundled up together and moved to L.A. for a few months, um, where they all lived in a house and bare tabbed up acid in the in the in the attic and the dead practice downstairs. And, you know, it only kind of existed like that for a a moment, but that is, you know, that's their origin story, you know, taking acid multiple times a week, probably at that point. Um, They talk about a a science fiction novel called More Than Human um, by Theodore Sturgeon. That's right. Um, Where it's about these kind of weird mutants who are all like... um, individually they're they're all defective in different ways but when they get together they create this like powerful group mm. mind and that was kind of their model for what was happening for what for who for what they were and who they were and they weren't microdosing for people listening <laughs> okay <laughs> like like they were and they were dosing each other or in dosing the people oh, around no. them like you know uh dropping acid into cups of orange juice and not saying anything like some of this sounds like literally stuff i would fight somebody over it's complicated. It, it, it's complicated. It's complicated, yeah, dude. Yeah. It was like, well, that was just it. You knew if you were at a Grateful Dead show in that point in time, there was a high percentage. If you drank, if you set your Coke down somewhere and didn't watch it for a little bit, that somebody might come by with a dropper and electrify you. <laughs> yeah. Send you into I mean, space. And <laughs> but the and music, but the music was great. Like, the music was great. And, you know, but one thing also to point out is that, so the, the acid tests in the timeline of the Grateful Dead, the acid tests are 1965 and 1966. Yeah. It kind of took them a few years to really like for their music to actually kind of catch up with that. Mm. Like you listen to the recordings of the early era and it's, it's fun. It's great, but it's kind of blues jams. And I, and I like, and I, and you know, it's starting to get a little jazzy. But it really took them like a lot of serious work and, you know, practice, like real serious discipline to like get to the point of like getting from the acid tests to like a 25 minute version of Dark Star. That took that took like three or four years. Oh, yeah. So they just roll out and do Dark Star for. Almost right. Yeah. Yeah. I think exactly. it's worth adding too. There's so many recordings of the band that exist because Bear was Owsley was recording their shows. So and and for a long time, right after the show was over, they all got together and listened to that evening's show to analyze what they did. And they did that religiously. So not only did they practice a lot individually, Garcia was known to practice for hours every day, playing guitar or pedal steel or banjo, whatever he was fixated on at the moment. But they studied what they did as a band, you know, beyond just individual self-betterment musically. They listened to what they did every night to try to improve what they did every night. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, playing football. I hate football analogies, but here one goes. Like, what good is it if we don't break down the film afterwards? There's a practice now in psychedelics and yeah. sort of the, this mainstream version of psychedelics. Integration. That's what you do after you 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 trip. You know, you 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 go through it, you go back through it and talk about what you experienced and what you felt, and that's sort of how you make it last and make it, you know, work in whatever way you're hoping for it to work. And the dead kind of, I think the dead really did that just instinctually. And that's, that's a lot of what you're seeing is that they went through this chaos, whether it's the acid test or just like the night's gig and went back through it and really like, you know, 
play by played it basically, you know, that the sports analogies are totally valid. I think with the dead. Oh, absolutely. Um, but it's yeah. More often than not, because you think about it, it's a group, it's a group effort. Yeah. 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 It's and, a and, team effort. And, and the whole listening to each other thing really stood out to me watching long strange trip. Like one of the biggest like buzz sentences that I heard was the, the key was really listening to each other because that's something I think that's always assumed in conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. And probably, you know, the instruments talk to each other as they put it, but they were intently listening to each other. Just wanna have a little peace to The Black Peter story <laughs> yeah. is one of my favorites. Um, what happened? Robert Hunter got dosed, uh, and there's a drug dealer with a diamond hand. And there's a whole situation. This is uh, the song Black Peter is inspired by this whole yeah, chao so, chaotic night in San Francisco. Yeah. So, yeah, like you were saying, there, there were a lot of dead shows where people got dosed intentionally, unintentionally, sometimes, sometimes somewhere in between. Sometimes you didn't, you know, you knew the punch was spike, but you didn't know with how much. And that was kind of what happened in this situation. Right. You know, Robert, you know, I think it was a, ca a night where I think multiple people had hit the same head, <laughs> dropped LST in the same <laughs> beverage. Like, oh, yeah. I'm going to be the person who doses the apple juice tonight. Bling, yeah. bloop. Yeah. And but there was and, already somebody that had given it a healthy portion before him. So <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. And I, and who knows how many of these Dixie cups Robert had of it that evening. Yeah, right, right, and right. And he got is, there. And this is a pretty notorious week. This is like the week when supposedly, you know, if you add it up, it seems like this is the week that Jerry Garcia got two dose to play right. on one night, which is a which is, you know, that's a rarity. Like, you know, Jerry Garcia too too <laughs> tripping too hard to play. You know, that's something that really only happened at the acid tests. That's why he talked about why the acid tests were important, because he was like, there was no pressure we could play or not. Right. And in this case, it was a real gig. <laughs> he got right. too high. So um so later in that week, yeah, this happens to Hunter, and he has uh, basically the trip to end all trips. He talks uh, is is I mean he talked about it was just the worst possible bad trip you could imagine. He said he, I think his interview line was like, "I witnessed every major political assassination in history from the perspective of the person getting killed." <laughs> like it's just like, oh my god. <laughs> And they like find him in the street, like, like raving about lobsters, some, some crazy or some crazy, some craziness. It was um, Franz and, Ferdinand for a second. Yeah, man. I mean, oh, right. shit. Here's the thing about that story though, that blew me away is that obviously he needs somebody, he needs a guide because he can't be left on his own. So it came to the point, whoever was watching, it was one of the hell's angels, I believe for a little while, but then they split and then Jerry and Mountain Girl are tasked with taking him from San Francisco back to Marin. But here's the thing. Oh, no, they're already home and they have to come back they to get him. Right? Yeah. And, and they're dosed to the gills, too. So <laughs> can you imagine, like, sometimes it's all you can do just to turn on the stereo, yeah. you know, and they've and got to go back and pick up Hunter. <laughs> All you right. can do and, to turn on the stereo. Yeah. And, well, so that's a, and, oh, simpler back then. You didn't have to connect to Bluetooth or anything like that. But it, but it leads to actually like an interesting historical point because we have this like interview with Jerry where he's talking about it. And he's like, oh yeah, and then we 
went there and I, we, we were like listening to the crowd that first, that Crosby Stills and Nash record that had just come out. And so then we listened to that over and over and over again and just sort of imprinted while we were waiting for Hunter to come down. Mm. And it's like, Oh, okay, well we can identify that. We know that incident happened then in June, 1969. And it, it becomes this sort of little turning point in their own musical history. So all these incidents yeah. kind of like feed into <clears throat> each other in ways where it's like, here's this crazy thing that happened. But then Hunter then took that insane, like terrifying experience and turned it into this beautiful song. Yeah. It's like really just intensely emotional piece of writing. And he, apparently he intended to be kind of funny, but it turns out it's not. No. I mean, it, it is, but it isn't. Um, and, and yeah. Um, and it actually really kind of initiated a new phase in their songwriting in that way. Yeah, it's, exactly. Um, I think it's fun. Like, there's so much kismet and there's so many, you know, branches that intertwine in this world that really that story is about Hunter. But if you look at a, a really important aspect of it, like you're saying, they listened to that Crosby, Stills and Nash record ad nauseum that night and it got imprinted. And six months later, they recorded an album that has some of the best vocal harmonies and then six months after that, another album with incredible vocal harmonies. So it, you know, would they have done that if Hunter hadn't a trip balls and, and had that's way too really, much? That's a really you know good what I mean? question. Yeah, it's, that's it's... a really good question. <laughs> I mean, like, and and did I learn that Jerry played on like Teacher Children on y'all's podcast? Yeah, y'all talking about yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The, just little nuggets like that. You could pick that up uh, on their podcast. So check it out. And Robert Hunter mysterious character still to this day would he be the the interview that you guys if you could wave your magic wand like yeah i mean or you know not counting jerry but yeah either of those guys are yeah. to me you know like the real just the core of the we were talking thing. about how much we really want to get robert do an interview yeah. with robert and then of course he passed so yeah, yeah. so yeah we have yeah. another part of the origin story of the dead cast is that we we actually started this like two years before before it debuted um and it, it kind of got a little derailed but we did a whole bunch of it we kind of like made a whole plan and plot and life took other courses <laughs> and uh, like everything else in grateful dead world it develops on its own yeah. there is a plan already we just haven't seen the map yet and, and so yet, it took us two years to find the path and yeah and really once you like if you look at the if you like listen to the episodes in order like there's there wasn't really much of a plan like they really the the, the way it worked really evolved right still evolving and, right. and, I, and i'm really intent on not hope hope we don't fall into formulas and hope it's just you know keeps you know find finding new 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 paths and new structures for us to to play around with if you could interview robert hunter like what the what the what the fuck <laughs> would you ask him because he was he was like he wasn't big on the interviews i guess no well it's funny he went through it depends who you were and when you were interviewing him yeah. and what you were asking him because he was there were a couple there were places where he would talk a lot he had an online journal for when i was in college in the 90s he was posting online every day and his, oh, wow. he was in his email address he would just post his email address He's like email me yeah. <laughs> would, i remember that and at the time i'm like i don't know what to ask him and i but i have friends who had email dialogues with him and just, they, he was just an email buddy to a lot of people so there he yeah. kind of went through depends who you were about yeah. accessibility how about like the relationships in the band when it came to having preferred songwriters right because was it was robert jerry's guy 
and or Bob's guy. Which one was it? He was Jerry's guy. Yeah. He started off as everybody's guy. He yeah. started off just as the Grateful Dead's in-house lyricist. That was his his job. So the for he the Dead started in '65, and he was friends with Jerry going back to the the early days in the folk scene. But he was kind of off doing other things for the first few years, and 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 in late '67, Garcia invited him on board just to be the the lyricist because he right. was a poet and a writer. Um, so he wrote lyrics for for Bob Weir and for Phil Lesh and for you know just for he, Pigpen. He was Pigpen. you know he, he was yep. just expected. He was just the guy who wrote the songs, but he was very precise in particular <laughs> about what he was doing. And Bob Weir ultimately wanted more freedom in terms of like what you know somebody hands you a set of lyrics. As a musician, he wanted to be able to kind of like move them around or, right. you know, whatever you do to make it into a song from lyrics. And Hunter was not always so gracious about what Weir did to his lyrics. And, you know, sometimes to be fair. And so Weir eventually found a, his own songwriting partner, John Perry Barlow, who um, I did get to interview a couple of times. So not never really about lyrics. He was a fa- fascinating guy who was into a whole lot of other stuff. Um, and I wish we could have talked to him too. He was, he was incredibly intelligent and, and interesting. Well, I didn't le- I, I didn't lean in like I leaned in any other time watching Long Strange Trip is when uh, Barlow talked. Like when oh, he yeah. came in and he was talking about that culture in that band and how macho it was and like, it would have been okay to just fucking cry. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know, you. he had this gravitas that like, I didn't know who he was when he started talking. <laughs> But I was like, oh, this guy's interesting. And I don't know. I, as somebody from the outside looking in, I really want to know more about him. Jeez, man. Talk about complicated. Yeah. Oh, so he was, uh, <laughs> he was born to be a politician and kind of yeah. always was, even though he was never held elected office. That's one way to describe Barlow. Yeah. He was a really, really gifted orator, really just incredible thinker. Uh, but grew, so grew up Mormon in um, Wyoming as a, a son of a cat, son of cattle ranchers, and he was a he was a cattle rancher until the late eighties, early nineties. Um, while he was doing a lot of this writing for the dead, he was he was also a cattle rancher. He was also extremely active in state politics and was um, was a, a conservationist. He was an environmentalist, but uh, was shoot i'm confusing the republicans from montana now <laughs> worked on it not cheney who's the other evil guy from montana um, oh fuck dude which one <laughs> <laughs> but he worked he worked on it he so barlow barlow was a republican in the 80s and worked on on campaign you know was like a republican yeah shocking yeah well yeah but he was liberty the libertarian libertarian-ish of the republican yeah. libertarian yeah. libertarian psychedelic end of the republican thing and, and eventually you sort of you know shed that i think as 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 yeah. the, the reagan era really got going Full but the libertarian yeah the, liber, the libertarian party kind of leaned into you and eventually founded the electronic frontier foundation which is sort of like the the aclu of the internet and got he fa- founded that in like 1990 he was like really an early online person and had a lot of really powerful effects on online culture um both good and bad he was he was a very very early free speech advocate the work that the electronic frontier foundation did was incredible on that front in the first like the early years of the internet we're talking even like pre before the world wide web even they were kind of thinking about privacy online and and encryption and all this stuff that really didn't become part of the mainstream conversation until 25 years after Damn, that really dude, i had no idea this guy was into all this yeah and and re- and wrote all these really power you know p- really powerful 
articles and editorials and things about it. But like, you know, and this is something that I would, you know, shade differently in my book if I could, you know, was very corporate as well in, in a different way because sort of leaning, like I said, leaning libertarian and a lot of sort of, you know, the sort of internet having corporate, you know, the internet was a government project as everybody right. kind of knows by this point and event, but now he's people like Barlow is kind of why it's so privately controlled that he is sort of at that, that pivot point. Damn, like, dude, this guy, I mean, I just thought, and it was funny. You said orator, like they're interviewing him in his Bronco or whatever it was like old vintage car. And, uh, it almost sounds like he wrote what he was saying. I mean, he was, uh, he, he's so, he, he was so well-spoken. I was like, damn, this guy's like, yeah, he's a songwriter. This guy's deep. And then they roll up to uh pig pen's grave, I guess. Uh, and the, he's like, uh, these fucking idiots. Why would you put guitar picks on pig pen's grave? I mean, a keyboard. Is. So like, I just thought he was quirky. Like he just seemed yeah. different. Yeah, definitely. He's a, a free thinker. <laughs> it's one way to put it. You know, he, you know, Edward, when Edward Snowden, you know, had all his revelations in 2015, 14, wherever that was. Barlow was like one of the people that he was, you know, palling around with. That was definitely, Damn, you know, so, you know, he stayed really at the forefront of that stuff. And I, yeah. you know, he died not, you know, a year or two ago, not that long ago, but like, I wish, I wish, you know, he's somebody I wish we could talk to. Cause he was, he had very, you know, he had very libertarian positions, very what, you know, things that, have been criticized kind of harshly, you know, mm-hmm. since, since he passed, but he was also, he really was open-minded and broad-minded. Right. And I do, I am curious at how his, has his thoughts would have evolved. Yeah. Like over know. the last two, three years, because nothing before the last two years is the same anymore. So yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, talking about Jerry, like in earlier, I kind of, I put it this way, like to me outside looking in, there's this duality to the music. That's really provocative to me. It's, um, it's not just Cherry Garcia and like Dancing Bears and Tie-Dye. Like there's a darkness kind of right under the surface and I didn't realize that Jerry had such like a, you know, I guess you could call it a dark childhood, losing your dad the way he did and that sort of thing. And the way this band kind of grew together and lost people, they talking about after 1973, it was just, you know, people were, were dying left and right in and around this band. W- is it that his brand just kind of gets in the way of this darkness or are people not listening, you know, like, because I didn't realize it for a long time. Yeah. I mean, there's a very, there's a cuteness factor that happens with, with around the grateful dead. Yeah. You know, the, the dancing bears, the, 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 the tie dye, like you were saying, the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the sugar magnolia, good time, boogie down, grateful dead. And that's real. You know, that's, that's certainly, a, a very dominant thing about what they were, but the dead were a really serious band, like in the early days, like we were saying, they incredibly disciplined, incredibly powerful, incredibly yeah. just really worked at it. And and all that stuff is there. They were, you know, the, the, the cutesy stuff was there, but that's not how they were presenting. You know, that the, the, the bears were, I mean, the bears originally we're, we're on a Grateful Dead album. They were on Bears Choice in 1973, but the way the dancing bears kind of became synonymous with the dead was sort of deadheads. They were on bootleg shirts. The deadheads right. kind of more amplified the bears. So I think a lot of that vision of the dead really comes from the celebratory thing that they became in the 80s and 90s. But when you really focus in on the stuff that they're doing in the 60s and 70s, the, cel- the celebratory part is certainly there. 
but it's so complex. And so, I mean, that's what, you know, Robert Hunter is. That's what the, that's what songs like black Peter are. It's this richness of human experience that includes, you know, death, death, death and horrifying things happening to people. And, you know, just complex moral choices and, you know, all f- freedom, <laughs> what happens with freedom, basically. And that's all there right from the start. You know, their name is the Grateful Dead. It's the but, imagery that fucks you up. If you're not yeah. a Grateful Dead fan, you're like, oh, you know, it's it's everybody's on right. drugs and it's happy. The first bunch of years, you look at their album covers for the first, say, 10 years of the band. And there's some dark, weird shit on those things. Yeah. It's, they were in the early part of their career. I think they were thought of as scarier. You know, they were... Mm-hmm. You know, before there was heavy metal, I mean, there was certainly metal in those days, you know, not taking anything away from Sabbath and all that, but there was the Grateful Dead coming to your town. You might get dosed. You might. Yeah, there might be a biker at your door. I don't know. Exactly. You might get abducted by the angels, whatever is going to happen. You know, you might get sucked into a commune and never be, you know, change your name. You might end up in India. Who knows? And (laughs) and so there is that that factor was of the, these crazy anarchists coming to town and the dead were crazy anarchists. I yep. think that's the thing that gets lost. Jerry Garcia, actually, that's like when you, if you ask Jerry Garcia about his political affiliations, he would identify as an anarchist and he knows what anarchy means. Like he, in the, the, the self-governing sense, not the yeah. burn, burn the McDonald sense. Um, and, and <laughs> they, he was, he was so fucking serious about that, about that yeah. stuff. And, and, so the cute stuff happened, I think, when he kind of, he can, I mean, Jerry kind of took his foot off the gas yeah. at a certain point. You know, he did slip, he, that darkness did sort of overtake, you know, he was, he was an addict and that really, you know, he was probably, he was an addict long before he was an addict. That's sort of how addiction is. And yeah. by the eighties, that was sort of, that kind of became his life. It's the thing is that he was still Jerry and he yeah. still practiced all the time, but he really he really turned a little, he turned more, a lot, a lot more inward in the eighties. He became, you know, somewhat reclusive, he, you know, except for gigging all the time, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't just showing up at random, you know, not that he crashed that bar mitzvah, but he wasn't crashing bar mitzvah. Yeah. In the well, 80s. Cause he's too big a deal anymore. I mean, probably right. you compounded obviously by the addiction, but maybe they play into each other. It's like, I could not imagine being Jerry Garcia in the seventies. Like for a while it was probably awesome, but then eventually it probably really sucked. Yeah. It's well, it, it did change through the years. I mean, I think a good example of that is we were interviewing Graham Nash and Graham right. said Graham knew him back in the day. You know, he gave him that Stratocaster that became one of Jerry's first custom guitars, Alligator, that was given to him by Graham Nash. And he said it changed as he got older. One time later on, what was it, late 80s, Jesse? Crosby, yeah. Stills and Nash were opening for the Grateful Dead. And Graham walked on stage and the roadies came up and said, you can't stand on that carpet. That's Jerry's carpet. Mm. So Jerry kind of became almost a, like a Dalai Lama, rock and roll Dalai Lama in a way where you very revered and more than a person almost to the right group of people, yeah. you know, that's gotta and, be hard for the band members around him maybe, or no, I think the, yeah, I think all of it was. I I, I get this. I think the addiction was probably a lot harder than the 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 deification right. part because you know he was kind of already a guru in the sixties and seventies when he was very present and very around, and that was Jerry. You know, he was just he was that was that was why it all happened. And then 
I think, yeah, it really, a lot of that happened because of how passive he got and just sort of, you know, and there's a beautiful period, which is when Rich was getting to see the dead when, you know, when Jerry did get clean again in the late eighties and early nineties for, for a little spell. And, you know, it's not like he was totally dropping into random bars to jam with bands, but he was extremely present and active mm-hmm. again for a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. That was when the Garcia Grisman record started to happen. Oh and my God, what a great well, that, that, that was. That, that's some awesome stuff right there too. Yeah, yeah. About it. I mean, you had, you had, you know, those Jerry Garcia shows back then, like 87, 88, I think 87 was the, he would do the, an acoustic set like the dead used to do with the Jerry Garcia acoustic band. And then we'd come out and do electric. Yeah. And I saw him once at the frost do that. No, actually the frost weekend, it was frost Greek. So the frost show was on a Saturday. It was the acoustic band and Sunday was the electric Jerry band at the Greek. That's wild. And what a, what a great yin yang. Yeah. I mean, it was beautiful. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I got a couple of their songs on my Spotify from the late eighties, but it sounded different, you know, and, mm-hmm. and not in a bad way. It just sounded different because Probably the way you, I mean, definitely, and you guys are the music heads, like the way you recorded these shows changed, the acoustics and buildings changed. That was another thing is like, I loved playing at old stadiums as a player. Like I was like really into going and playing at Candlestick or Soldier Field, like fuck these new stadiums, dude. And I feel like a dead show, if they could just teleport back, it'd still be awesome. But the stadiums are so sterile now. Like they had to play some really cool places that the acoustics were different and maybe challenging to record stuff. Mm-hmm. But oh, the yeah, 80s that... sounded way cleaner in a way that I just am like, eh. Well, that's really cool to know. That's really interesting to know that you like old old stadiums. I never, oh, yeah. it, it never, it never occurred to me that. I mean, I have that yeah. feeling about venues, yeah. like whether they're stadiums or theaters. I love the old funky stuff way more than the new things. And the Dead certainly loved that. You know, the the new box set. There are shows from the Fox Theater, which is this rundown movie it. theater that apparently I like I went through all the old underground papers from St. Louis. Almost nobody played there but the dead, but they loved that place. So they 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 loved that kind of thing too. The sound of the band did change insanely. Like I that was part of my fascination when I became a deadhead yeah. in the 90s, which is I saw them and it was like, and I kind of had like I guess I, I, you know, Touch of Grey was an enormous hit in 1987, just ubiquitous. And I, I knew that song from the radio. And then I got like some older dead. I was like, this doesn't sound anything like that. And I saw them. And I, at the same time in 94 that I was starting to like listen to the Grateful Dead Hour and hear 70s tapes. And it was like, how is this even the same band? Dude, yeah. Like, how? I don't. And, mm-hmm. to, and I, I, which is kind of, so I do a, a listening project on Twitter where I'm listening to every single Grateful Dead show. I've started in the 60s. I'm up to the 80s now. And just hearing how it changed. And it was because that they were so because they were so present in whatever moment they were in, everything was always in flux. And then that and that goes to the gear. Like they were always like up into the next level of the equipment and the the song arrangements, like you know, right. you could do whatever you wanted. You there was no fixed part. You know, you had a bass line that you played on the album that everybody knows. You don't have to play that, you know, it's like, yeah. and it's yeah. so you listen to the way they play the songs in the nineties and literally most of the time, the parts that are playing, you know, they, they resemble the parts that are on like the original versions from the sixties and seventies, but like only in a cursory way, it's like, they're not committed to, and that's really that thing about being in conversation. That's kind of what that is. It's like being in the moment. Cause you can be in a band 
and have your song and like, okay, this is how the song goes. You know, you play it this way at this tempo and then there's a change to this section and a change to this section. And then we all sing the vocals together and then it's done. And I've played in bands and sometimes we play songs like that. And then that's, that's not with a dead word, you know, they were always in the moment. I felt like they were covering a different band. And I mean that really respectfully, like they were a cover band of themselves, which I think (laughs) is really fucking Mm -hmm. cool, dude. Like, you know, I get bored. I've run out of music. Like I can't stop descending into this rabbit hole. It's just deeper and deeper. And I think that's really, that's one of the biggest draws for somebody who's, who's just figuring out. I mean, uh, I love it. I love the fact that everything was varied so much. But you talked about in the late 80s, one of the things that blew me away the most was that you go from this band that in the early 70s was like these concerts are a living organism and it gets kind of out of control in the late 80s and they actually have to be like write letters to their fans to say, hey guys, you can't set up cities around <laughs> these nice new stadiums. It's not 1972. <laughs> yeah, they just got so popular, literally. And I mean, I was right on that before and after because 85 it was mellow yeah you know and then when in the dark came out and touch gray was a huge hit and they had videos they were getting played on mtv they reached this whole new audience and everybody started coming in and there were people that didn't respect the traditions and so they did the band reached out to core deadheads and said look it's a you know You've got to teach your children here. <laughs> yeah. You've got to you've you've got to spread the word about how things go, or else we're not going to be able to do it. Right. And there was that internal dialogue in the tribe where it's like, hey man, you got to chill out. There were a couple times where it was a deer run where they overran the back fence and just it was mayhem, like thousands of people just got into the show. I mean, it's it's crazy. It changed so much. You can't put Pandora huge. back in the box, man. You can't mm-hmm. Put the genie yeah. back in the bottle, dude. Yeah, it was. Right. It was like, no, 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 no. We're the Grateful Dead now. Is kind of the idea I got. Like, <laughs> we're all the Grateful Dead, man. You can't, you can't yeah. stop this thing. So, yeah. I wonder though, as you, you know, bands age, creativity wanes, like chemistry can be strained, all that stuff. Like, hey, how, how many bands get better as time goes on? Which could be a whole nother sidebar. You guys could probably do a whole pot on that. Like who actually got better as time went on? Who you got on your shirt? Yola Tango. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so I'm just saying that like, it's hard for me to imagine another band being the Grateful Dead, like ever again. I, I just don't think you can recreate the vibe they had for a few reasons. One, it's one in a million, you know, from the the synthetic, rather the chemical inspiration to uh, to the time period where like, you looked at these shows, I was watching um, with a colorized history, kind of like the grainy old footage. And I'm like, not a motherfucker has their phone out at this show. You know what I mean? Right, it, yeah. Like just, it was the perfect time for the perfect band. And I don't even know if you could ever recreate that. Yeah, you can't. Because I mean, if another thing that I think gets forgotten about the dead and lots of the their contemporaries in the in the 60s in San Francisco is that music was really only just one little component of this like insane thing that was happening like on all fronts that yeah. you know mu- you know music was 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 equal to just the street culture that was emerging yeah. and, and and you know art and in San Francisco things like the diggers who are kind of this you know anarchist socialist group if you can kind of imagine a <laughs> more anarchist than socialist um, and, but it was it was all part of this in, in, enormous movement where 
you know, even bands in the punk scene in New York, that was a music scene. That mm-hmm. was like, that was sort of where it, it kind of emerged from. It wasn't a counterculture in quite the same way. And just the conditions of all of that at the same moment, like, like you were saying, is just the, the perfect explosion for, for, for this thing. So the dead were, you know, the dead were a band, but the way they operated inside American culture wasn't like other bands. It wasn't. And, and people recognized that at the time, like you see the cover, like the way the dead were covered when they would come to some like random town wouldn't be the same as if, I'm, I don't know what another comparable act would be. You know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I guess. Yeah. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and the Dead, say, playing the same, yeah. same same arena in the same town. Yeah. You know, just, I, I don't even know if that ever actually happened. But the, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were treated as as rock stars, yep, as, rock stars. Like, as people who had these enormous pop hits. The Dead were treated as kind of like the representatives of the counterculture, representatives of this... This, I mean, in the 60s, what seemed like a revolution, what seemed like this like crazy thing that was happening and the dead were kind of the musical vanguard of that, you know, and and so people, you know, like you look through underground newspapers from that era and the dead are treated with even, before, you know, they weren't big. There were many, many bands in, in the 60s who were bigger than the dead. The dead, you know, that's the part to uh, me that's a mind fuck because they can't but, exist in any other realm than the one they do. But, today. but they but they had the cred. They had the credibility. Yeah. Like even in the 60s, like people just like the, the acid tests was really kind of like that was the word of mouth. It was like, oh, these guys are in with the acid tests. And it just gave them that like an authenticity that was, you know, that nobody else had, you know, they just, they just had a thing that nobody else had. They were the acid test band. And that, you know, makes them more than just some band. Some gravitas the there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they're totally. the guys from the acid test, but also musicians respect them. Yeah. Like who was the most oh. random, like, I love the pictures of old musicians hanging out with musicians that you wouldn't think they'd hang out yeah. with. Like that's the coolest thing in the world to me. Like who's a guy or a girl that would frequent a dead show that you'd be like, oh shit. Black Flag. Oh wow. <laughs> Henry Rollins, yeah. you know, Ray Gaiman, Black Flag. <laughs> I see Henry somebody, Rollins getting into it. Then somebody, so they Black Flag broke up in 85, 84, whatever year they yeah. broke up, somebody was saying that they were like, saw them in the parking lot at uh, Alpine Valley and they were like on their way back from the tour where they had just broken up and they stopped to see the that's the incredible for, for breaking up <laughs> which I think is hilarious and so, it's like they, that can't have been a fun band ride right like, no, dude. just like imagine like hey you're in a van with Henry Rollins and the okay. band is just broken up like not good vibes but okay, guys, stop, stop and see the dead let's stop and see the dead okay are they the greatest American band of all time I mean I should phrase that better the most American band yeah, well, they certainly. And they certainly take all the different musical influences and incorporate them from, you know, jazz to bluegrass to folk to rock to rock and roll. I mean, it's they definitely draw from every well. But at the same time, they are unlike any other band. Are they the most unique American band? Absolutely. I would, I would yeah. say yes. Most impactful? Probably. I mean, I just saw the Stones a few days ago. They still got it. And they they're, do, they're, huh? they're massive. The way they bring it is just mind blowing. Keith Richards voice sounded better than probably the last two times that I saw him. That was my fifth show. You know, I'm like, is this the great is still, is this the greatest rock and roll band? Cause that's the way they build themselves for a long time. Right. And Sam Cutler came up with that line. I think uh, yeah. did well, that would yeah. make sense. It's greatest rock and roll yeah. band in the world. <laughs> yeah. well, right. Right. Well, they're pretty damn good. 
But you know what? It's like I, 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 the Stones maybe are in my top five list of greatest concerts I've ever seen, but yeah. there's probably three dead shows ahead of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and that's saying I something because you're seeing gods on earth, dude, when you're seeing the Rolling Stones. It's like, yeah. uh, I mean, for me with the dead, it's like the, the, the scope of what they were doing in terms of how deeply plugged into American traditional music they were. You know, Jerry was like way into the folk, like deep into the folk world before he was in the dead. Like there are pictures of him, like in the front row at the Berkeley Folk Festival. He was a tape collector. They were like, he was really embedded in that. He was yeah. part of that. And that the level that they were playing at in terms of, you know, Jerry playing with, you know, people like David Grisman and, you know, with, with folk music, but also with like electronic music and experimental stuff with people like Ned Lajan in the seventies. And then in the eighties and nineties, they started experimenting with like MIDI, you know, and like, you know, really like noisy stuff that electronic producers use. Now they were kind of, you know, that was being integrated into, into their setup in the eighties that, you know, into the, into the drummers and then, you know, the guitarists just the scope of that with with how, how popular they yeah. were like those two things multiplied like their their the scope of their influences with how popular they actually got it's just incredible like how just you it's really hard to go places in american music without kind of touching on that i mean hip-hop but that's about it you know yeah i mean maybe that's next i don't know i mean hopefully <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, i hope so so where can i find more olden in the way because that just popped into my head like you're talking about all this stuff that well, because I've got my Spotify and I've maxed it out and I'm like, there's got to be some more fucking records somewhere. OK, well, we just were talking with um, Starfinder Stanley and Hawk, who are the Starfinder is Owsley's son, Bear's son. OK, and they run the Owsley Stanley Foundation. There is a massive catalog of recordings that Bear made. Wow. And for a period there. Bear was focused on Olden in the Way. How many shows did he record, Jesse? It's a massive number. I mean, my understanding is that he recorded virtually all of their rehearsals and their shows. I mean, they only existed for about a year. And yeah. I think he, re right. he recorded maybe, you know, if not 100%, then at least, you know, 80% of Damn, that. Stuff. Will so those ever see the light of day? Possibly. Yeah, hopefully. They, they have, yeah. They've saved all the tapes. They've been preserved. Okay. And the sonic quality of these recordings that bear made is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I mean, was, I just got just an aside. I just got the, the official Owsley Stanley foundation release of the Almond brothers in February, 1970 on vinyl wow. and listened to it uh, <laughs> three or four days ago. It's amazing. It's amazing. And they're, they're just stoned on acid. And you hear at one point you hear Dwayne say, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh, what a good friend. I know, so, right? so fucking high. <laughs> what yeah, a good we, friend. So, so hopefully yeah. we will see these recordings. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that they need to talk to and get releases to get them out. Yeah. But if we're lucky, we'll see a bunch of old and in the way releases. But I will also point out that, you know, Deadheads and Bluegrass fans, which intersect at very much in Olden in the Way, uh, are tape traders. And Jerry and Grisman, tape traders back in the day. Yeah. So there are lots of Olden in the Way live tapes floating around just out floating. there. For That's just, floating, just floating, like little clouds. More mystique. So on, it's more mystique, man. Um, it is. Uh, they're on BitTorrent, actually. If you, BitTorrent. If you, if, 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 I can barely update my iPhone. I'll be able to just <laughs> navigate the fuck out of BitTorrent. I'm good. Just like, hold on. I'm just typing it in here, buddy. Well, that's the thing. It's the thing. You can, but that was the thing about being a deadhead is you kind of had you to gotta want it. You got to learn it. You got to well, learn it. Yeah. And it's not just you got to learn it. You got to want There's a 
great grateful dead lyric you ain't gonna learn what you don't want to know yeah and, exactly <laughs> and, and, and so yeah. john perry barlow that's a really profound thing and if you wanted to be a deadhead in the 70s and in the 80s and into the 90s and you wanted those tapes, you couldn't yeah. just go on Spotify or YouTube or whatever. You had to trade tapes. So or, easy now. We're so lazy. I'm so lazy. So, I love trading tapes. It was so fun. Yeah. Like going to my mailbox, it's like, here's this package of like five or six things that I got for free that's that are going to fucking blow my mind. Yeah. Like, they, they, one of those in there is going to be your this. new favorite tape. <laughs> Post yeah. office brought this shit to me. It's like they sent yeah. me drugs. It's like yeah. they sent me drugs. I should be looking for the fucking feds. Not like they did. <laughs> Audio drugs. Audio yeah. drugs, man. So I want to finish with one thing. Yeah, that's cool. That's I got my fans are always. Uh, I, if I have fans, I have listeners, football fans that listen to my podcast. They like to mailbag me all the time. What's your favorite Grateful Dead show? Or yeah, I don't have a favorite Grateful Dead show, but I can give you my yes. f- five favorite Grateful Dead songs, <laughs> and I want to see if you guys have any good facts on them. As okay. I rifle through them, my first question would be, is where does Ship of Fools rank in the chalkiness of, of Grateful Dead favorites? I've had people tell me it's like chalky, it's probably a consensus top 10, and then I've had people tell me it's like, oh, that's a deep cut. I don't think either of those are true. Which one is it? That's that's one that Jerry loved, man. He so he would drop that one into second sets, which is sort of like the the stellar framing for it. That's like the heavy point in the show where it's like you've already warmed up and you want to, you know, you want to you want to give them a statement. And Ship of Fools lived in that spot, so I wouldn't call he played it a lot, but it's it does live somewhere between a deep cut and something that I played like a lot. It's a heavy song. I that's, that's my favorite, man. That's one that uh, that that lives deep in my head a lot over these last few years yeah people also say it's about the grateful dead yeah it's about the grateful dead crew and things how things were getting um overwhelmed that was 1974 is when that song came out and that's kind of when the wall of sound was coming in that's when things were starting to become overwhelming with too many crew members yeah and hunter especially even more than barlow didn't like that vibe he robert hunter used to travel with the band to, to every show and eventually felt like he was the vibe was a little too weird for him and he he sort of retreated and even moved to England for a few years. So Ship of Fools I've seen ascribed to sort of that attitude. Wonder what his proposition was. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I love the song. My my two year old I sing to him almost every night and one uh, in the rotation is Ship of Fools. He knows about two verses. So pretty good for a two year old. Uh, wow. How, how about Petty. Yeah, he's a deadhead. <laughs> my two-year-old is a deadhead reason i'm right <laughs> we try to we try to avoid the contact high part of that but uh he is a deadhead all right so dark star um this is a robert hunter song yeah is this it's it's a group group composition okay robert, Hun- robert hunter lyrics i mean that's the that's the dead song that's i mean that's the jam yeah that's, that's, that's dark star it, there's a there's a so there's a great single there's well, not a great there's a version that they recorded on a seven inch single in 1967 that's like two and a half minutes it's like a single yeah (laughs) and over the course of between 67 and 69 it expanded very gradually actually from two and a half minutes to like 20 minutes 25 minutes and then basically in 1969 on it was like the dead's jam song and that's the magical place the magical place was dark star yeah, I and, love Dark Star, man. I, and the the short studio version, I want it to be longer. I wish they could go back and make it longer. <laughs> yeah, I love I love the vibe actually on the short studio version. We're okay. actually here. I do have a tiny bit of 
insanely detailed trivia about that. There's the drone on the studio version. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a tampora, an Indian instrument. The person playing it is a woman who uh, was named Hetty McGee at the time. Her name is now, her. Eventually, her name was Hetty McLeese, and she married Angus McLeese, the original drummer from the Velvet Underground. Oh wow! And went on to be an influential person in like the weird subterranean music art world of, you know, sort of the India New York connection. Yeah, yeah. So there's some trivia for Dark. There's some Dark Star <laughs> trivia. She'll fe- she features into an episode that uh, Rich will be editing soon. I feel like we're gonna have a George Harrison conversation at some point here. Like, uh, but I, I just. Uh, I just love the song. It's my favorite version. I think it's 25 minutes long. I forget which one it is. There's a bunch of versions from 72 that I would probably jump to as, as uh, April 8th in London and August 27th at the uh, Vanita Fairgrounds. That's the Sunshine Daydream mm-hmm. uh, movie is the August 27th, 72 one. The, uh, the other one is on the year of 72 box set. Um, the one that's on the new Listen to the River set, uh, from Cleveland, excuse me, from St. Louis 72, also an incredible classic. Lots, oh, basically, anytime they started playing that song in 72, classic version. But okay, could, this is one. Talk about dark stars from every year if you want. Okay, good, yeah. <laughs> I have this one dark star that when motherfuckers ask me, like when I meet a deadhead and they're like, What's your favorite show? I'm like, oh, Bickershaw. Bickershaw. That's like that. Also, a great fucking dark star. So then they they back off. They back off, man. And then we're like, we're talking about something else. (laughs) Back off, Bickershaw, man. I don't even know where it is. That's England. That's that's it. And that's that's a great deep cut dark star. Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello and Joe Strummer both at that show. That's my badge. So, Bill Bill Frizzell, who's an amazing legendary American jazz guitarist, did an amazing version of dark star into comes a time with james mcnew who's the bassist in in yola tango band whose shirt oh, there you go yeah uh but they based it based it on the bickershaw version they they apparently like oh, passed that wouldn't. version but back and exactly right <laughs> <laughs> passed passed that version back and forth and uh yes. and and kind of not learned it but kind of used that as their inspiration <laughs> Okay, Cosmic Charlie is that that's not a popular song, but I love that song. Uh man, I I I have an acoustic guitar around the house and that's one that I've learned to play somewhat recently. It's so fucking complicated. I know exactly why they dropped it. So many chord that changes. Is, but that's the thing about a lot of Grateful Dead it. songs. Oh, they don't sound shot. complicated. They yeah, don't sound complicated, but when you start to learn them, you're like, what the why would you do that so smooth <laughs> it could be the most intricate weird change but it just sounds so smooth oh i mean that, thing, that, that song has two bridges both of them with like these really weird chord sequences yes <laughs> yes dude and i hate bridges i sound like an idiot talk but i fucking hate bridges bridges as me as a music fan have like a 200 batting average this is not baseball <laughs> <laughs> fuck bridges but the bridges in that song there's at the end and i don't even know if this is a bridge but you know the, the when the guitar changes up in the last minute and a half and dun, 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 it sounds like water cascading down and of course i was on mushrooms on the river and right when it kicked in we we, we hit the rapids three quarters of the way through that song and i'll never forget the song because of that and the importance of that song to me and i love the song so but maybe see, a there's that cut. continued kismet with the Grateful yeah. Dead music and what is going on in your life. Yeah. It's true. It does 
sync up. I love the early versions of that song. There's some raging ones from 69 that are just, they slowed it down at some point in there, but the first few versions are just at like breakneck tempo and it's just, that's ah, great. Okay. <laughs> Wrap the babe in scarlet covers all in your St. Stephen, which they opened, I mean, that's fairly chalky. They opened uh, Long Strange Trip with that. So what is that song about? It's about St. Stephen, but who the fuck is that? I could Google harder. I feel like that song in a lot of ways is sort of a birthplace of like Robert Hunter's philosophy in some ways. He kind of yeah. sort of, he, he kind of cosmic psychedelic philosophy. The, the Grateful Dead had a newsletter in the 70s. And they would like send these um, dispatches about this guy, this mythical character, St. Dilbert who's the, the patron saint of hypnocracy, which is sort of like, you know, cosmic, self-negating <laughs> humor religion or something. And St. Stephen, I, I kind of see a whiff of that in there, kind of this sort of funny, you know, you know, wherever he goes, the people all complain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of this sort of like, mm-hmm. there's, it's a, it's a, there's some heavy cosmic wisdom, but it's also pretty funny, you know, that kind of thing. I love that uh, damn song. I love the, but, like, the organ or whatever it is in the background. Yeah, That's yeah. probably my favorite part of that damn song and the, the guitar too, uh, which is for you guys, very basic analysis of a song. Um, well, no, but I think the lyrics in that song are a great example of, you know, a lot of t- songwriters will work on writing one cohesive from start to finish the song. Yeah. That St. Stephen has these stanzas or couplets that are complete thoughts unto themselves. One man gathers what another man spills. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bam. We were just talking I mean, about that line. <laughs> yeah. It's, he has all of these completely compartmentalized thoughts inside of his songs, but then they string together to create an entity. Yeah. It's really, and you could, you know, you can dissect them and walk away with as much of a gold nugget as the entire song itself. Right. Yeah. And there's a whole scholarly world of, of Grateful Dead people who are in like academia who get together and talk about this stuff and go really deep into like the teachings of, you know, maybe not the teachings, the, you know, the logic of Robert Hunter or the, you know, the what, yeah. what philosophers he's kind of accidentally or intentionally hinting at, you know, that sort of thing. I'm really interested in the psychology of these guys. I'm really interested in the, in, in, you know, in what they prescribe to intellectually. It's, it's pretty damn cool. We could go on for a while. My last one is loser. Uh, but mainly cause of the Cornell version. Ooh. Yeah. So shout out to my buddy, Tom. He turned me on to this song, uh, which is obviously a, probably a, one of, one of the more prominently known Grateful Dead songs, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry, love the shit out of Loser. Who doesn't love Loser? Loser's yeah. great. Right. That's on. another thing. Were they yeah, some gambling dudes? Because well, you had gambling lyrics and card imagery and you had uh, like uh, a bunch of songs, right? Had, had kind of even in the titles. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was, that's Hunter. And I don't know if he was so much actually a gambler or that was kind of his set of metaphor. That metaphor. was his set of language, yeah. you know, like, you know, the, you know, it's, that's that's his modern his modern way to relate to people is through you know that's where you know that's where the cosmic bill gets settled is at the poker table you know something like that the cosmic just, poker table not the literal yeah, one yeah yeah it's like it's it's just sort of a language that that kind of and you know fit in with the the the, the sort of the dead i think kind of evolved into that what the, the the country vibe 
in the early seventies. And I think the the card playing kind of went along na- naturally with that, though there's some of that actually in, in some, you know, some of the psychedelic tunes too. So it was already there, but, but yeah, really a conceptual, some conceptual continuity for Hunter. Well, there you have it, guys. You guys can stop hitting my mailbag with what are your top five Grateful Dead songs. I thought you guys, <laughs> I thought I was going to get tomatoes thrown at me. Uh, well, these guys didn't think they were that fucking bad, guys. So uh, Those are great fun. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you need, if you you need start to start out with Ship of Fools, come on, man. Dude, Ship of Fools, man. The first two <laughs> chords or whatever notes to that song are just, they give me chills, bro. Yeah. They give me chills. I, I think Phil, Phil once introduced it as a heavy duty song in D minor. D minor. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah, I don't know. It's the saddest about of all keys. The saddest yeah. key? Okay. It's the saddest of all according to Spinal Tap. Oh, yeah. Spinal Tap. Good Spinal Tap <laughs> reference. Jesse, Rich, thank y'all so much. You've been gracious with your time. Uh, again, I'm just telling you a lot. Like some of the things I learned listening to this podcast in just three or four pods. I mean, have been remarkable. If you like diving down the rabbit hole, these guys will take you there. Good old Grateful Dead cast. Appreciate your guys' time so much. Thank, thanks Thank for you. having us. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. Yeah, yeah, man. We will keep listening. Cool. Cheers. And you at home should too. Cheers, guys. Take it easy. Hey, y'all. We want you guys to interact with us more on, on social media here. Let me not sound like a fucking cop talking about this. We want you to talk to us, you know, like sometimes you get on there and you're like, hey, y'all aren't talking to us. Just type us a message on one of the various, uh, I don't know, we'll be on VSCO soon. We'll be on all types of shit soon. So right now it's Twitter, it's Instagram, it's YouTube. Uh, leave some comments, man. You know, Twitter is at Greenlight and uh, YouTube, we're at Greenlight Tube. And uh, we're also always looking for free stuff. So we are once again asking you for random free shit in my Bernie Sanders meme voice. Uh, send packages to 2150 Y Street, number 5267. That's Charlottesville, Virginia, 22905. Thank you in advance for all the wonderful things you'll send us. 